to reconcile, reckon, 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 huh? we about to reconcile, bitch, we about to reconcile, we about to reconcile, we We about to reconcile, we about to Alrighty, party people, welcome, welcome, welcome to another scintillating episode of Rubber Reconcile This. And we are pleased and privileged to have in our midst Dr. Sylvian Greensword. Dr. Greensword, would you please give a brief introduction as to who you are, who you be, and what is it that you do within this TCU universe? So I am the postdoctoral fellow uh, here at Texas Christian University's Race and Reconciliation Initiative since November of 2020. As the postdoc, one of my primary assignment is to direct the oral history project of the initiative. So collecting voices and uh, having present and past student and faculty member and TCU community member to tell us their story when it comes to race relations on campus. And I mean, just to, to build upon, what were you doing beforehand and what do you think uniquely qualifies you for this anthropological journey? Hint, hint, wink, wink. Well, I'm going to start from way back in uh, 2006 when I started as a high school teacher. Uh, I have been a high school teacher since 2006, straight after grad school. Uh, no teaching experience. Wait, wait, by the way, that'd be a great t-shirt, straight out of grad school. All right, go ahead. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's exactly how we went down. Uh, no teaching experience, not even a teaching certificate. They just needed somebody who knew French and who didn't hate kids. And uh, well, I didn't, I didn't hate kids. So I needed a job and that was perfect. And I basically learned on the job. It, it wasn't easy. It was a, a kind of an inner city type of school. Lots of students of colors. As a matter of fact, uh, Caucasian students were a minority at that school. We had a lot of socioeconomic challenges, and I just came out of grad school with a degree in uh, liberal arts and African and African-American studies. So I said, well, you know what, maybe that will be a way for me to practice what I preach and, and, um, and serve my people. So I started teaching French. Uh, it was very challenging, but I learned a lot uh, when it came to the social reality that um, the less fortunate have to face in, in our country. Uh, and, and in the South, because it was in Louisiana. And teaching was supposed to be something temporary because I always had in mind that I would go back to uh, grad school and, and do a PhD in something along the lines of African, African-American studies. Uh, I ended up being a high school teacher for 15 years after that. Wow, wow. Yes. So, were, were you kind of just pulled in? Did you like, like being around the students or is this uh, like the well, circumstances? 
you do form a bond um, yeah. with the students. You do have, a, and I, I've always loved children. Uh, I have six children of my own. So I always had a heart for children. I mm -hmm. always knew I was going to uh, be a professional in some kind of educational field. So, you know, this, this was a great way to um, just be in the classroom and be with children at the same time. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, I, I worked in the public school system for a while, but I quickly transitioned to a laboratory school that was part of an HBCU um, known as Southern University Laboratory School. And I, I stayed there for quite some time. So it was also a way for me to um, actually practice what I had learned in my African, African-American studies background and, and see it manifest in the classroom as well. When you talk about uh, the anthropological skills that you're applying for the oral history project, mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I was hinting at the prodigious amount of research that you did in Jamaica. Uh, you you wanna just share a little bit about well, what, what you did in terms of you know, how you really had a chance to hone your skills mm -hmm. you know, at the, uh, the highest research levels uh, when you were getting your uh, PhD at uh, Louisiana State. I actually started that PhD while teaching full-time. So it was quite challenging, but it's just to let you know, you know, when there is a will, there is a way. Right. There's nothing like a strong <laughs> Black woman. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I, I did a PhD in geography and anthropology, and uh, my dissertation project was investigating manifestation of ethnic identity in hair braiding salons. I did work in Jamaica, um, but it ended up not being included in my dissertation. But the work that I did in the United States was similar and very, I can definitely parallel that. Uh, I worked with African hair braiding salons. Um, any woman who gets her hair braided wants to get her hair braided in um, a salon that is called African hair braiding. So you don't wanna get your hair braided at any salon. You want it to be an African hair braiding. Why? Because African stylists have the reputation of being more authentic because the, the vernacular art of hair braiding clearly originated in Africa. So, you know, those, those customers usually want to go to those salons. So me being a woman of African descent, I wanted to know, well, what, do, what makes those salons African? Why call them African hair braiding? So I visited hair braiding salons and um, I wait, said, wait, wait, wait. I have to jump in. That, that's a little too modest. When you say visited, oh, you literally were doing your research. How? Well, it, oh. it actually started as a visit. I asked, well, is it okay if I just sit down and observe? And of course they told me, heck no, there is no way we're going to <laughs> let you just sit there and watch us and take notes on how we behave. Nobody wants to be observed like I'm some kind of, you know, Western scholar that comes to observe the African mm -hmm. hair braiders and see how that species behave in the sight of, no, no, no. So instead they said, well, what you're gonna do is bring your butt up here and you're gonna braid with us. And oh. uh, they had me, wow. I knew how to braid. Uh, uh, okay. I was a woman, I was of African descent. And as most of them actually come from parts of Central and West African African countries that are Francophone, it also fit into what I could do because I could speak French. Mm. So, you know, we bonded over um, braiding hair and I was able to document the Africanness in those salons from, you know, a first account was I did what we call participant observation. I was observing, but then they made me participate. So, so like, I guess my question would be, you know, uh -huh. what were some of the things you were able to pull from that? And then this will help transition into like 
the next part of the questioning. But when you were saying that, you know, when they said no, I was thinking, oh, they made you actually get your hair braided every time you wanted to observe, but to actually sit there and participate in the actual yes. process, I'm yes. sure you learned a lot. Because um, me listening, like I'm, you know, having sisters, having mom, having partners, you know, I always hear about like, oh, I got to get my hair braided, I get my hair braided. It's going to be a three hour process, four hour process. Mm -hmm. You know, I just hear, you know, as me, I just go to the barbershop, you know, quick fade, 20, 25 minutes and I'm done. But braiding is a very extensive process. So like, what are some of the things yes. that you took away from that? And, and Ms. Perkins, when you say, what did you pull from this? No pun intended. No pun intended. I, you know, <laughs> maybe I'll tell you there. <laughs> yes well one thing that I, I found that is so interesting is that they make their profit based on commodifying the fact that they're African mm. um, so whenever you are in the salon you have to perform your African identity you have to speak French or some kind of African dialect you have to you know, braid really, really fast so that the customers can be impressed by your dexterity. You want to dress in a way that is exotic um, so that when customers come here, they come not just to consume uh, the service that you provide, but also to have like that exotic experience. Mm. When they come here, they want to consume Africanness. So we have African music playing in the background. We have those Nollywood movies playing on, mm. on a, a screen in the back. Um, and, and of course, we do have those things that are common in all beauty shops, which is the gossip. Mm. Um, so we learn about, for example, I, I worked in New York City for uh, a long time, and I learned that there are uh, mm. such things as uh, hair turfs. So we have African-American salons, their hair turfs is relaxing. So anything chemical coloring, a woman will go to an African-American salon. If a woman mm. wants her hair um to be uh, straightened, but not necessarily with that many chemicals, they will go to a Dominican hair salon. If a woman wants uh, her hair braided, she will go to an African salon. Mm. So there's like this, this oh, wow. territories, That's if crazy. you want. So I've, I've learned that. And I've learned that they don't necessarily all get along. So wow. a big part of the gossip that I heard, for example, would be the Africans uh, gossiping about how lawless the jamaicans were in in new york city mm, that's, that's yeah. interesting that's because because as, as a male it's like you know you don't cheat on your barber you got one barber your barber should be able to line you up fade you up cut you i know dr g you know he, like this you know he, he got he got the long hair don't care but you know uh -huh. shortcuts short <laughs> cut, you know what i'm saying that, that, so that's interesting so mm -hmm. i guess for me like that that to, to kind of switch over to what you currently do now, mm -hmm. how has that kind of laid the foundation for the current project that you're doing? And, and so um, mm -hmm. kind of let people know what, what you're doing and, and how these skills also transformed into what you're doing now. Absolutely. So what I wanted to produce out of my experience with the hair braiders, whether it's in, in New York City or in Jamaica, mm -hmm. where I also work with hair braiders, it was really to be able to tell people's stories to be able to put in writing what is being said orally, being able to also put down what are those markers that make an ethnic group different from the others in terms of their culture. Mm. Is culture and ethnicity really the, something that could be associated? And how does that translate in the hair salon? Well, now I have the blessing to be able to do something very similar at CCU. I'm looking at people's voices, but also how their racial identity has been impacting their role in the community, mm. how they perceive that 
their race matters, how their race affects their life, how their race affect how they are being perceived. And I get to do this in their own words, not mine. Mm. So I'm just, I'm kind of a translator, if you want. Mm. They tell me their stories and I just put it on papers to make it accessible to the larger audience. So with now, kind of with the Oral History Project at TCU, mm-hmm. how have those same skills kind of manifest? Because I hear like knowing what you do, witnessing, mm-hmm. you know, you con- conducting interviews with, you know, mm-hmm. different alums, mm-hmm. faculty and staff, like I, I hear those skills still being displayed now. So what was that transfer like? And then say, say more about the Oral History Project, if you will. So just like what I did when I was doing my oral history with the braiders, yeah. um, a lot of people have talked about the laws in in the hair braiding industries, like how those black braiders need to be certified or how they need to start paying taxes, how they need to provide diversity of services. But nobody really asked the braiders, what do you think about all that? Mm. And the same can be told about the black part of TCU history. And I'm saying black part because that's the part that we're exploring right now with the oral right, right. history project. Um, so we, I got to interview um, some people whose voices so far has, have only been heard through um, documents like the SCIF right. or, you know, some kind of maybe the, the Fort Worth Star Telegram. It's not their voices. Mm. It's the, their story told by some kind of other scholar, maybe another white writer right. that you know, gave their twist on history. Now I get to hear their version, their words, their feelings, their mm-hmm. anger, their pain, their successes. Yeah. You know, and, and along those lines, you have also resurrected voices from the past. Uh, would you mind sharing a little bit more about Mr. Charlie Thorpe and what it meant to discover his voice and what you're doing to still keep his voice alive? Okay, so just for the sake of context, Charlie Thorpe used to be the slave of the Colonel um, Pleasant Thorpe who owned the first building upon which TCU was built. Now, after being emancipated, uh, worked for TCU for quite some time, but his name is not found in any of the early yearbooks or any of the early documents. He is not listed as staff, although he was a major staff member based on an encomium that was published later on he was such an instrumental person but yet we hardly ever hear anything about charlie thorpe in any of the official documents about tcu as a matter of fact we don't hear anything at all Um, was he enslaved or or, or not he was enslaved and he He had a partner too right was there was there a wife that also worked alongside him so his wife, that uh, is uh, named Kate, Kate Thorpe, also worked for TCU. Now, both of them did a good amount of janitorial duties. Yeah. Uh, however, one must understand that uh, janitorial duties in the 21st century and in the 1870s are two completely different tasks. We're talking about two people without whom the students would have no dorms to go to, they would have no security guard, there will be no heating, no fire, uh, firemen around. We're talking about, um, you know, just a big array of skills that they brought to the campus that 
without them would make life impossible on campus. Mm -hmm. um, I would even say survival. So two people that play such an instrumental role, I just found it outrageous that there could be no documentation of their existence mm. in any TCU documents. Now we found out about them digging through archives, right. um, but we do want this to be an oral history project. Mm. So the task that we started was to try to trace their descendants. Mm. So that this project, which was an archive research project, can become an oral history project. Mm. Well, one of the things that when we do our classroom visits, I always start with, you know, what are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves mm -hmm. um, as an institution, which is made up of, of many hundreds of thousands of individual stories that are all valid and true and hold a place here at TCU. So, you know, I think it's very powerful that, you know, you're leading this charge in which you're in charge of telling the unfiltered story. Because like you said earlier, some of these people were able to tell their story through the skiff and, and through uh, white writers where it was kind of narrowed and cut down and made pretty and made more acceptable um, mm -hmm. to the listener to say like, okay, they had a unpleasant time as opposed to saying like, I hated it here. You know what I'm saying? I struggled right. here. I went through. So like having those raw emotions being told. Um, so as, as a listener, what is that like to actually sit and hear these people tell stories whether it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I'm pretty sure you have stories from 30 years ago where people are kind of reliving the moments and you can kind of see the emotion on their face and in their tone and in their body language. So like, how has that been for you as an observer? Well, I, I have to distance myself um, mm. from the emotional toil. Yeah. Um, this is very challenging because some stories, they're just heart-wrenching. But I, ha I had to learn how to distance myself because I cannot have them lose it and I lose it too. I mean, right, right, right. but then we're both crying and then what do we do, right? right. <laughs> so, so yes, I had to, uh, you know, learn to keep my composure and, and the way to kind of uh, overcome this uh, frustration is mostly preparation. And preparation is a good part of what I do um, before an interview. I try to have my questions ready. Of course, the conversation can lead you to places that you know you had no idea even existed. But I think that preparation is definitely the best way to be able to cope with those intense emotions. Um, another thing that helped is that I am not a TCU alumna and uh, I just joined TCU. So right. I'm kind of new to the community. Right. And that gives me also more objectivity uh, when I listen to these stories. I, I love my place of employment, but at the same time, I have enough distance um, not to feel offended if my participants have a lot of bitterness against the institution or um, you know, think of it in negative terms. Of, like in general, uh, I think that the a vast majority of participants are very fond of TCU. And that can be sometimes misunderstood because it's one thing to love an institution and it's another thing to be able to criticize it. Mm. And, and I know that sometimes some listeners may not be able to see um, that there is love in the criticism. Right. But, but I do hear that a lot. Um, in, in the interviews that I conduct. Um, they have fond memories of TCU, but those memories are tainted 
by those instances of racism that they had yeah. to endure. And more importantly, instances that don't necessarily appear in a written document. And right. that, that's, that's the purpose of the oral history, right? Right, right. to fill in the gap. Right. right. Fill in the gaps. So, right. so how, many, how many interviews do you think you have covered in this short span of time? I have co- covered over 20 interviews so far. 20. And it, can you, for our listeners, say how many you plan to have in the future? Well, my supervisors keep on telling me to stop. <laughs> Actually, I should have stopped quite a while ago, but I keep on coming across stories and, you know, I'm here and I'm like, oh, this is good. This is good. Tell me more. Uh, and, you know, as long as the participants are forthcoming, I, I have, I'm having a hard time turning them away hmm. because they are bringing more pieces to the puzzle. Yeah. And did you, let's circle back to this. Did you talk about though, if you're gathering all these stories, many of which are filled with, you know, a, a certain amount of emotion and pain. Right. I mean, uh-huh. how do you keep yourself balanced in, in terms of absorbing all this energy and, and still being able to uh, stay positive and productive in your own daily affairs? Well, I would like to take all the credit for it, but I have mm-hmm. a very, very strong support system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, my, my parents are African, so I have a village mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes a village to not just raise a child, but nurture a child and mm-hmm. take care of the child, even after the child is grown. Mm-hmm. I'm benefiting from a great support system. I have a very big family of my own to come home to at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can give them all the black love I have to give. <laughs> and I think it's important you remind our, our listeners uh, that you weren't necessarily born in the United States of America. And Correct. because earlier when you were talking about how you learned, it's not a matter of, oh, performative, somebody's clueless in academia again. No, right. it's a matter of actually. Um, not you have to get your hands people. dirty. Well, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, well, I, with, I thought you were referring to the hair braiding piece, but no, but with respect <laughs> to just in general. Yes. Not all black people are created alike. And so yes. what is that like for you, this idea that you're black, but not African-American? And I'm sure many mm-hmm. people assume that you're African-American, mm-hmm. that you have this experience. But if anything- Until I start talking. Right, right. right. <laughs> but, I mean, but, but, but to your point, I mean, you, you actually have another layer that is more complicated because how many languages do right. you speak? Right. I, I speak about three languages. I'm intermediate in a couple more. Wow. But I'm, I am fluent in French and Spanish. Uh, I was born in France and uh, my family traveled a lot, but I, I spent my childhood in two countries, Algeria, which is in North Africa, and in France as well. And mm. I've been in the United States since 2001. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, I just, it, I know we're short on time, but it, the, the, that added piece of, you know, being black but this global right. sense of blackness like right how has that also added another lens to like the work that you do with the mm-hmm. hair braiding piece where you're looking at different um, ethnic groups and nationalities and how they pretty much do the same hair braiding process but also this work now like how does that add another lens given your background well um being black is definitely um there's not like a a single definition of blackness and i have personally experienced several forms of racism which to me makes it easier to discern Mm. uh when when i encounter instances of racism or not whether it's uh subtle or or i've experienced it so i i can read it um but i also have developed thick skin 
And I have developed, uh, you know, different coping mechanisms and different survival strategies um, just to adapt. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Doug, do you have any more questions before we close out? Absolutely. I mean, I think it would only be fitting for someone who's asked this question of numerous people. Dr. Greensward, what does reconciliation mean to you? <laughs> oh, I should have known. I should have known. I should have known. <laughs> Woo. Okay. I will give two definitions. Number one, reconcile has the re part and the concile part. So Reconcile means two things or together. If you reconcile, that means that those two parties that were together at some point had been separated and it's time to bring them back together. My second definition would be maybe a little bit more economic. We know that reconciliation is the word that we use whenever we are fixing the budget. So when it comes to reconciliation, I think we need to consider what are the costs of the racial divide and we need to rectify, we need to balance the budget. And the budget is not necessarily monetary. Uh, there's a certain set of emotional reparations that need to be done. There are um, spiritual reparations that are needed. And I believe that uh, not until this hard truth can be heard and can be uttered, then we can really start walking toward unity. But until we face ourselves as an institution or as a nation and address those uncomfortable truths, we will not start that journey toward unity. The truth has to be told. That's where reconciliation begins. Wow, that was uh, well done, well said. Uh, Beaumont, as they might also say. Oui, oui. Uh, yeah, no, no, I mean, because in all honesty, I, I, I think you uh, hit the nail on the head when you talk about how do we literally put our money where our mouth is, right? Mm -hmm. You know, to go along with your analogy. And so I think one of the ways is on 420, uh, 2022, us to have a check-in, have a public accounting. We said, this is what we're going to do. How are we doing? Like, are we making progress on the key recommendations that, that we said were important to us, that the board of trustees unanimously approved? I agree with you. And are we making the daily investments, right? You know, not, not just one time, you know, you know write, write, a, write a big check, but just on a daily basis, right? What's the investment that we're making individually and collectively so that right. we can improve uh, our scenario? Um, and so I think, when we look at our upcoming, uh, you know, town hall series, you know, uh, starting off with the 29th, uh, you know, of, of September, followed by the 21st of October, and mm -hmm. I believe the 11th of November, you know, we're looking at opportunities whereby we can come together so we can move forward together and ultimately to go along with your analogy, profit together. This is a win-win situation for everybody. It really is. I cannot promise what will ultimately happen as a result of our enterprise in studying TC's relationship with slavery, racism, and the Confederacy. But I can pledge to you that we are doing the best we can with what we have.